0: Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com.
1: You're listening to Move Forward Radio, a podcast featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts with advice on how you can move forward.
2: Welcome to Move Forward Radio, I'm Eric Reese. Joyce Gomez-Osman is a physical therapist and a neuroscientist whose dual interests are reflected in her research on the effects of exercise on brain health. There's a growing body of evidence that being physically active both benefits the brain now and can help slow the declines in brain function that come with age. Joyce and her research associates have concluded that when it comes to brain health, the overall and cumulative effects of physical activity is what's most important. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, she shares her very personal interest in addressing cognitive decline as manifested in neurological conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. She talks about what is known now and what each of us can do now to optimize brain health through exercise. And finally, Joyce looks to where the science on exercise and brain health is headed, even as certain key questions remain unanswered for now. Let's listen in as Joyce shares her journey and findings.
3: So, Joyce, you're both a physical therapist and a neuroscientist, which is an interesting combination, and and, uh, you earn your degrees in different countries. So before we really kind of dive into this topic, can you give us a little bit of background on on where you're from, uh, your your motivations in pursuing these particular fields, where you work now, and, and your current professional activities and interests?
1: So I'm actually from Brazil, and that's where I pursued my physical therapy degree, and I always had um, a very, very big interest in science when I was in Brazil. I was really motivated by the opportunities to have more science in physical therapy. And so I started participating in research activities very, very early on. And part of those research activities actually brought me to the University of Miami, the lab of a very distinguished, uh, wonderful, also physical therapist and neuroscientist, who happens to be the head of our Foundation for Physical Therapy, whose name is Adelfield Cote. And when I came here, I was really, really fascinated by this idea of combining physical therapy and neuroscience. And so in the lab of, of Dr. Field-Pote, where I was uh, pursuing my, my Ph.D., my doctoral work at the time, she did this really, really incredible work trying to figure out if people were getting better, functionally because of rehabilitation strategies that we did for people with spinal cord injury, what were the parts of the nervous system that were allowing that to happen? And so I had this access to work with robots that help people walk and with non-invasive brain stimulation, which was all these kind of really cutting-edge things that were really, really fascinating. And this, you know, just sort of jump-started my interest in science even more Alvaro Pasqualeone, he offered me the possibility to go do a postdoctoral fellowship to further my training in science at Harvard Medical School. And so I went to Boston, I spent a little bit of time there, and then I came back to the University of Miami. I currently am an assistant professor. I straddle in between the Department of Physical Therapy, which is my main heart, my main home. But I also have an appointment in medical neurology, where I have a research lab. I uh, mentor other wonderful students to this journey of their their doctoral work, their PhD, and I'm really really interested in using science to answer questions that essentially help people lead a more more functional and independent lives. Then something interesting happened in my in my life, which was my grandpa. I actually lost him to complications associated with Alzheimer's disease, and so this was a pivotal moment in my life because it made me become more interested in this scenario. And so right now, many of the research studies that I lead here, I lead them also uh, concurrently. I still maintain an affiliation with the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, with the Berenson Allen Center for Non-Invasive Brain Stimulation up at Harvard Medical School. But in collaboration with the studies that I do here in my lab and over there, I am really um, now focused uh, on better understanding how we can promote brain health for individuals who are aging. And a big part of this piece, which I think is a piece that physical therapists are positioned at a very, very special place to help and to intervene and to contribute to this effort, is disentangling this interesting relationship that exercise has in promoting brain health and ameliorating age-related cognitive decline.
3: You were featured in a recent uh, Time Health piece in which you discussed the the findings of a research study about exercise and brain health that was published in the journal Neurology Clinical Practice. Can you tell us a little bit about that study? I mean, what did you and your fellow researchers kind of want to find out to begin with and, and what kinds of information did you look at?
1: We were actually kind of surprised, you know, when we came in to do that study because the idea that links exercise with the promotion of brain health is definitely not a new idea. So the mm-hmm. idea that in a healthy body lives a healthy mind is definitely something that is, has been around for thousands of years. And in addition to that, when we look at the scientific evidence, and so the way that the scientists compile and synthesize all these sort of research studies, is that in order to find if something is effective, if something works, there's a type of study that's called a meta-analysis. There had been a lot of meta-analyses that had been done before we did our study, more than 50, in fact. And so the idea that exercise is effective at improving cognition is, is again, not a new idea. However, because I'm not just a scientist, but I'm a clinician as well, what do I actually tell people? That was what motivated us to take on the study, is that to tell somebody that something is effective is not enough. So essentially, when I go back, and I always play this video back of having my grandpa, right, if I know that exercise is effective, what could I have told my grandpa about exercise? and essentially, would he have to have done something like 30 minutes a day, four times a week, or an hour a day, seven days a week, in order to reap those benefits of exercise in the brain? And also, in addition to that, when should he have started this this practice? Could it have been implemented in his 60s, or could it have started in earlier, or in his 40s or 50s? Because we know, actually, from the evidence that we currently know about age-related cognitive decline is that When people start to become symptomatic in their 60s, there actually are changes that are happening in the structure and the function of their brain years, 10, 15, 20 years before people ever even come to you saying, you know what, I'm a little forgetful, I've misplaced my keys, I go to a party and it's hard for me to remember everybody's names. And so I think to myself, oh, okay, well, then... Should we have told him to start in his 40s then? Does it have to be implemented in your 40s to work, or can you start at any time in your life to to reap those benefits of of exercise on the brain?
3: So what you're saying is that within those uh, meta-analyses lay some of the keys to, uh, to answering those questions.
1: Exactly, exactly. So the main questions that we had that were questions that surprisingly other people hadn't asked really is how much exercise? what kind and how long is it necessary to get a sharper mind? And in addition to that, people want to know if they have problems with memory, for example, are they going to get better or do they only get better with uh, with their problem solving, for example? And so the second part of that question, if I maintain an exercise practice, what changes am I going to see in terms of my thinking skills? Am I going to be able to problem-solve better, or am I going to be able to remember things better, for example?
3: Joyce, the results summary of the the study reads as follows, and then I want to ask you a few questions based on it. Um, So It reads, we found that exercising for at least 52 hours is associated with improved cognitive performance in older adults with and without cognitive impairment. Exercise modes supported by evidence are aerobic resistance or strength training. Mind-body exercises or combinations of these interventions. So that's the overview, but in the Time Health piece, you also made clear that 52 isn't necessarily a magic number, and you talked about some surprises that the uh, the study yielded. So I'm wondering, can you talk about all that, Your your assumptions going in, what the data told you and perhaps what the data didn't tell you, how you arrived at that 62 weeks figure and the broader implications of the findings?
1: One of the things that I thought, you know, I had my mindset that we were going to be able to find usefulness in is the amount of weekly minutes spent exercising. And the reason why I thought that was going to be a number that was useful was because we know that from guidelines put forth by the American Heart Association and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they tell us that in order for us to keep our heart sound and in order for us to keep our physical health, we have to be exercising for about 150 minutes per week or 75 if it's more vigorous exercise, right? So we know that. Our doctor tells us that when we go in, or our physical therapist tells us that when we go in to see them, and they ask us about how active we are. But in addition to that, what I wanted to do is that we generated an immense, a beautiful amount of evidence by all of these studies that were done that were compiled in in, in 50 meta-analyses. And so essentially what we did was that we got randomized controlled trials. And in the scope of scientific clinical trials, these are the most rigorous types of clinical trials, okay? And so the reason why we chose those was because we wanted the best quality evidence in order to estimate something that we could think of even as guidelines or or as exercise uh, recommendations for brain health per se. And so what we did was that we looked at every single component of dose and so specifically, this was, for example, the, how long did a session last in minutes? How many times per week was a session delivered? How many total weekly minutes, like as I said before? How long did the whole intervention last in terms of weeks? And also in terms of total hours? Once we averaged out within all of that body of evidence, you know, sort of the patterns that emerged in terms of dose, We not only looked at the number, right, at how often exercise was being delivered, but we wanted to find out what kinds of exercises are backed up by the evidence. We just looked at every study and we sort of jotted down what people were doing as part of those studies. In addition to that, we then looked at all of the ways that the studies individually assessed thinking skills, and we created a couple of different bins of cognition or bins of thinking skills, as you think. And these are things like processing speed, how fast you're able to process a mental task, and executive functions, which essentially means problem solving in the real world. And then global cognition, which is essentially like a glimpse into how good your thinking skills are in a broad sense. And also memory and working memory as well. And so we wanted to understand, uh, number one, if any of those parameters of dose could be responsible for the improvement in thinking skills. And so in order to do that, we ran some some very um, sophisticated um, statistical analyses to look at that. And we also ran some sophisticated statistical analyses to look at, if you are to have a benefit in your thinking skills, where are you going to expect that benefit to happen? Is it gonna be your overall thinking that's gonna get better? Is it gonna be your memory that's gonna get better? Is it, is it your, your problem solving that's gonna get better? And so essentially, when you talk about the 52 hours, this comes from the fact that from that statistical analysis, the most important thing, the pattern of dose that could be responsible for the improvement in thinking wasn't as we had sort of bet on the amount of weekly minutes that you spent exercising it was instead the overall time that you spent participating in an exercise program so from all of those things that i said in terms of time of exposure to exercise the most important thing was that you created a lifestyle change that over the course of many sessions many weeks that your total exposure to exercise led to this improvement in cognition and thinking skills. The average was six months, but I do want to highlight to you, and this is an important point, that the actual six months wasn't a significant predictor. So it couldn't be held responsible. In other words, that it doesn't seem to matter that you necessarily have to do it in six months. And I actually see that as something that's really encouraging because the way that I see this practically, the way that I would say it to a loved one, to my dad who's going through this right now, is that think of your exposure to exercise as sort of points that you accrue. And so it could be that it doesn't seem to be important for you to structure your daily session of exercise in 30 minutes or an hour. It could be that you do 30 minutes, it could be that you do 45 minutes, it could be that you do an hour it doesn't seem to be that important if it's done three times a week or four times a week or seven times a week. Instead, if you rack up the points associated with each exercise uh, exposure, each exercise visit that you do, once you get over many weeks, right, over a couple of months, you get to that 52 hour mark, this is probably where you're gonna have a greater likelihood of reaping those benefits onto your thinking abilities, okay? Mm. And so it Mm -hmm. could be that you get there in three months. It could be that you get there in six months. Now, I don't want to tell you to go 10 years, (laughs) (laughs) 52 hours, okay? So you have to be careful there. But it's encouraging that if you structure it in a way that fits in your day, that the most important thing you really hear is the lifestyle change that you're promoting. And so one of the things that's interesting is that We have many questions, right? One of the things that I would like to see, and I think that we'll be able to see because I'm I'm just like a hopeless hopeful, (laughs) is that that we treat exercise the the same way that physicians treat drugs. When you go in there and you have hypertension, they give you a specific amount of a dosage of a medication. That's not more, that's not less, it's very specific. And I believe that we have to be this specific with, with exercise. But in order to get there, we have to understand so much more about how exercise actually changes our biology. And we are so, so different. We have genetic differences, lifestyle differences. And, um, you know, clinical differences in in, in our medical history, things that make us age differently, it would be very naive for us to think that we would respond with the same exact dosage to exercise. And so, well, I do say that we found that 52 hours, and perhaps you can think of 52 hours as a range. Okay, if I start an exercise program, maybe what I'll want to do is I will try to do an assessment of my thinking abilities. I'll get started. And then once I reach 52 hours, I'll go to have an assessment again just to see if I've been able to have a sharper mind. But definitely, I think it would be very naive for us to think that there's a magic number. I think that we we have to move to a more individualized model of exercise. And I think that when we do that, we'll be able to make exercise even more effective. And it's a wonderful opportunity because it can be done without a lot of economic financial resources. Exercise can be very expensive, no, don't get me wrong, but it could also be very simple and cheap.
0: A quick break to tell you about Choose PT, the American Physical Therapy Association's national public awareness campaign. America is currently in the grips of an opioid epidemic. In some situations, dosed appropriately, Prescription opioids are an appropriate part of medical treatment, but opioids only mask the sensation of pain, and opioid risks include depression, overdose, addiction, and withdrawal. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging healthcare providers to reduce the use of opioids in favor of safer alternatives like physical therapy for treating pain. Learn how a physical therapist can help you at moveforwardpt.com slash choosept. And now back to this episode of Move Forward Radio. Well, I have, a, I have
3: a few questions here, and one of them is that according to the, the study summary, uh, the modes of exercise that are best supported by the evidence are, are aerobic, uh, resistance, mind, body, and combinations of those. So can you talk about why those specific things and which forms of exercise perhaps are less helpful?
1: So I have to remind you that I'm looking at essentially characterizing this body of evidence that over the course of many years we've produced. And so, of course, the conclusions of this study are going to be tied to what people did in those rigorous randomized controlled trials, which are the strictest forms of clinical trials that have been done. In essence, we found that half of that evidence did support aerobic exercise. And within aerobic exercise, the most common intervention was actually walking which was very interesting because walking is easy to do. I think about clinical populations and people who probably can't start a very strenuous aerobic exercise protocol, but it's encouraging for me to see that if they just start walking, that this is something that can contribute to their physical health, to their heart health, but also to their brain health and so um there were several other uh types of aerobic exercises that were used that were backed up by the evidence and so cycling was one of them um using the elliptical was one of them there were studies that involved dancing as well and so This is something that was super encouraging. I do want to tell you that while the greatest portion of the evidence supports aerobic exercise and I'm making this conclusion because half of the studies that we looked at were exclusively using aerobic exercise, this does not mean that aerobic exercise is actually more effective. It just means that it was more studied. And if you think about the way that these uh, people, you know, propose research studies, they're also based on logistical decisions, right? And so if you propose a study that does aerobic exercise, you need one person who is going to put somebody on a a treadmill or 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 on a stationary bike, and this person is going to be able to do that for a while. Now, if instead you're doing resistance training or weightlifting, for example, you need to individualize each exercise for every subject that you have. And so this has an impact on the cost of the study and all those sorts of things. So essentially, it's a little bit more complicated or you need more resources to do uh, studies on weightlifting and dance and, and those kinds of things, for example. But it's very encouraging to me to see that weightlifting was another mode of exercise that was backed up by the evidence because we do note that there is a prominent decrease in strength in the legs in people as they age. And this is actually really well-related with their ability to move around, to live independent lives, to do the things that they want to do. And so we do prescribe resistance training, weightlifting exercises for older adults. And it's encouraging to me that a quote-unquote side effect is that they're going to get a sharper mind because of that as well. And in addition to that, mind-body exercises, we saw, we saw several ones, low-intensity yoga. We saw tai chi as well. And it's encouraging for us to see that those things are backed up by the evidence because if you're sedentary, you should start with a more subtle exercise program. You should not start to run or trot or anything like that. But it's okay. It seems to be okay to start slow. It seems to be okay to start by walking or to do a Tai Chi regimen, which we know that helps with balance, with with, um, reducing the risk for falls, because that, another quote-unquote side effect, is that people are going to get sharper minds. All these things are really, really encouraging from a clinical perspective.
3: I want to ask you, when you mention that side effect of a sharper mind, what cognitive functions are likely to be positively influenced by exercise?
1: Absolutely. The second big analysis that we did, you know, was that when I told you that we created those bins of thinking skills of cognitions because we wanted to know one of the things that does happen is that there's a huge variability in the results of studies of exercise on cognition, and what I mean by that is that one study comes out and says, oh, exercise was really helpful to improve memory, and then another study comes back and said, oh, exercise was not very helpful to improve memory, <laughs> and so this, for us, um, creates just uh, difficulties in us uh, actually being able to create simple, practical, clinical advice that we can give to our loved ones and to our patients. And so what we did was that within each of those bins that I talked to you about, we actually ran a statistical test to see what's the percentage of time that a test related with memory was shown to improve thinking abilities, and what's the percentage of time that a study proposing exercise would not improve memory. And so essentially, if within that bin that we're talking about, 50% of times exercise improved memory and 50% of the times exercise didn't improve memory, so that's not a very stable result, right? That's not something that we want to actually make recommendations on. And so by us actually doing that analysis – we found that the most stable improvements in thinking abilities were found in processing speed, both in individuals who were healthy and also people who had some cognitive impairment. And in addition to that, the healthy people, people who didn't have cognitive impairment yet, they additionally benefited from improvement in executive function. So, so memory skills actually did not seem to be impacted by exercise in our analyses. And so processing speed and executive functioning are key things to completing everyday tasks. Processing speed essentially refers to our ability to understand and react to the information we receive from the world quickly and effectively. Executive function covers a sort of broad spectrum of abilities, but in general, it helps us in tasks that require higher order thinking, such as, such as organizing, planning, reasoning, problem solving, and, and controlling our impulses, for example. Executive function is necessary for us to do things like, like adequately manage our finances and make healthcare-related decisions, for example. Processing speed and executive function are also necessary for complex activities like driving and reacting appropriately in in an emergency scenario, for example. And um, I think one of the really exciting things that we see from that is that processing speed and executive functioning are among the sorts of thinking abilities that deteriorate when we're aging. And Mm -hmm. so it's super encouraging for us to see that by changing our lifestyle and by adopting an active lifestyle, we can actually turn back the clock of aging in our brain.
3: So, uh, going back to the, the fact that you were you were motivated uh, in a lot of your future course of study uh, from the, your experience with your your grandfather and and his in his dementia. Um, most anyone listening to this conversation has an older adult and or knows someone in that age demographic or uh, may be in that age demographic, uh him, him or herself. So based on what you know about exercise and its effects on brain health, what's the answer to the question, what should I or what should my older relative or friend be doing now to keep my or his or her brain optimally healthy in terms of exercise?
1: From what we've learned from this study, I think that one of the the key things that we have to do is to maintain an active lifestyle. And so if exercise is not part of your life, you should make exercise part of your life. However, I do have some things because when we talk about, you know, we talked about the fact that many studies supported that walking was something that was helpful. Now, people, I don't mean window shopping, (laughs) (laughs) yourself up and going to the mall with uncomfortable shoes and just casually strolling. No, no, no. Physical exercise is different from physical activity because physical exercise is when you make an appointment with yourself you are going to get in the mode of exercise. You're going to put clothes that, that you feel comfortable moving around in, that you feel comfortable sweating around in, and you're going to be, you know, taking a walk with the objective of taking a walk of exercising. And so one of the things that you can do, of course, if you're going to start, you're going to start slow. And you're going to ramp up. But eventually, for you to be able to actually be doing aerobic exercise with walking, you have to walk at a pace that's comfortable for you, but build yourself up to a level where actually carrying out a conversation is going to be a little bit hard, right? Mm-hmm. That you're going, to, you're going to be breathing hard. Your heart's going to be going fast. And so what I think about is that I want you to think about your exercise exposure as points. I want you to make time for exercise and figure out when that was was gonna be. That's probably one of the hardest parts actually is to make time, is to make it a habit. But choose an exercise type, uh, choose a time, and do it a couple of times a week. Keep it up for a while. Even though that 52 hour number is not a magic number, it does give you a ballpark and it's important because if you don't see something happening in the first month, then perhaps if you, if you rack up those points and say, oh, I only did, you know, 15 to 20 hours this, this month, so I've got to keep on going. So don't get discouraged if you don't see anything to begin with. But start your exercise, keep it up, and when you hit around that 52 hour mark, you're going to be most likely to see those results. Actually, also, because I do have a science brain that's intermingled with a clinical brain, one of the things that I've done with, with my dad, actually, is that coming back to those constructs, right, of, of thinking abilities, of cognition, essentially processing speed has to do with reaction times, with how fast you can compute mental tasks. Mm-hmm. And so what I've done with my dad is that I've just Googled a website, the same website, and it had a reaction time test. And I asked him to write that down, that same website, and so he did that, a reaction time test three times and took an average <laughs> okay mm-hmm. and then I directed him to another website that has something to that's called a Stroop test and this is a test it's widely available online anybody can Google it and find it and so the Stroop test is a very widely used clinical test to assess executive function which is that other construct that was um, shown to be ameliorated by exercise mm-hmm. and so again find a Stroop test write down the website so you don't remember, forget where it is, and then do it three times, take an average, and write those numbers down. And this is your pretest, okay? And mm-hmm. then start your exercise uh, regimen, whether it's walking, whether it's cycling, whether it's dancing, tai chi, yoga, whatever it is that you find interesting, and keep it up, rack up your points to when you get to 52 hours, and then redo those tests. And I think that that's, that's an, an engaging way to, to sort of track your progression.
0: A quick break to tell you about Find a PT, the American Physical Therapy Association's national database of physical therapists. PTs are movement experts who treat people of all ages and abilities, helping them to improve and maintain function and quality of life. Don't wait until you have an injury to see a PT. Contact one today and learn how you can improve your fitness and prevent health problems before they start. You can contact a physical therapist near you, no physician referral required, by going to moveforwardpt.com. And now, back to this episode of Move Forward Radio. How early in one's life should one
3: be uh, doing these types of things, uh, engaging in these modes of exercise in order to, to reap those benefits in older age?
1: That is an excellent question that I directly can't give you an answer from that study because we didn't really address that. What I can tell you is that the mean age was 73 years of age in, in, uh, across all studies that we looked at, but my educated guess, knowing the science in this field, is that given those changes that we know happen in the brains of people who have age-related cognitive decline years and years before they actually ever have a symptom that takes them to their healthcare professional to, com- to sort of have a complaint about their, their thinking skills. My belief is that you should start earlier on, as early as possible. But it's encouraging to see that in those studies, all people, most of the people that participated in the studies of this study that we did, they were sedentary to begin with, and their age, mean age was 73. And so there's an opportunity there. This means that if you are sedentary and you are in your 70s, even if you're what we call the well-worried who don't have a lot of complaints about their thinking skills yet, or you have some cognitive impairment. The study that we published is evidence to support that you can get better, that you can choose to adopt an active lifestyle, and this can actually help you reap those benefits in terms of your brain health. So it shouldn't discourage you, it should make you motivated. I mean,
3: just to be clear, you're not saying that exercise necessarily is is going to be the cure to Alzheimer's, but you are are saying that it can be helpful in ameliorating some of those uh, symptoms later
1: on. Oh, absolutely. It would be very naive for me to say that anything is the cure for Alzheimer's. I think that we've had so many very, very smart people working on this. This is a complex problem that will require still a lot of hard work. Again, we're going to contribute. We're going to work very hard to be able to to maybe maybe provide a very, very small piece of this puzzle. But it would be very naive for me to say that there is an easy cure. In fact, we know that the efficacy of drug trials has, has not been the best. Generally, there's evidence published in that. And this is likely to do to the fact that it's a very complex problem. It's a complex problem. We all age very differently. And so things like like our education, our lifestyle, our diet, our genetic makeup, all of those things actually interfere with how we age and how we get there. And even some people who are genetically prone to uh, exhibit Alzheimer's disease in some cases don't. And we don't quite have a a, a perfect understanding of why that is. But what I can tell you, and in fact, um, one of the things that you bring up that I think is important for me to say is that we did not have the ability to follow individuals or to have information from those studies if there was a change in the number of people who would then go on to exhibit Alzheimer's disease. Instead, we looked at a different question, and we showed that people who were healthy, who didn't have problems with their cognition yet, they were able to improve in in their cognition, in their thinking skills, and also people who did have some impairments, some complaints about their thinking abilities, were also able to improve in their cognition. So it's a slightly different question. So whether you you don't have any, any complaints yet or you have some complaints, it seems that exercise can help you improve your cognition, improve your thinking skills, and that's a different thing than going on to progress to Alzheimer's disease.
3: So you've basically synthesized a lot of the data that's out there, and, and you certainly, ha- as you say, you have you have a, a speculative thoughts on on what might happen based on your on your study and what you know. But where do you see the science on exercise and brain health headed? I mean, what what are sort of the unanswered questions at this point, and what advances do you see coming in the next several years?
1: We definitely have many many questions that we are uh, thinking about examining. And uh, we are working very hard uh, to, to, to follow up on these by designing further studies. We need to know much more information about exercise dose. When you think about these other forms of treatment, like I've talked to you about, like drugs, for example, you're prescribed a very specific amount, not more and not less. And I think that we really need to get this specific with exercise. So while it's, it is helpful to have an idea about exercise parameters that are more likely to lead to benefits and thinking abilities, identifying uh, a sort of an ideal exercise dose will be challenging for a number of reasons. We're still learning about all the ways that exercise changes our brain. And second, we're all different. So the best exercise for one person may be quite different from the best exercise for another person. In addition to that, we also need to know how much of these effects of exercises are associated with decreasing our sedentary time. And so one of the things that's important is that, you know, if you spend most of the day as a couch potato, but all that you do is get out for an hour and to jog or to run, you still are spending most of your day as a couch potato. And so um, it could be that you could have similar benefits by just being somebody who's more active. If your job or if your hobbies take you to the garden and you're walking around and you you know, and you're breathing fast and you're doing things and picking things up and, 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 and bringing those things down. It could be that this could have a similar, similar effect. We definitely need to know a lot more about how exercise changes our biology. One of the specific things that I wanted to mention is that we know a lot about how aerobic exercise improves uh, brain health because, because most of the, as, as we've talked about, most of the data was on aerobic exercise exists to support the link between aerobic exercise and and having a healthier brain. However, something like Tai Chi or low intensity yoga is very, very different because aerobic exercise essentially makes for a more efficient heart that's gonna be more efficacious in pumping blood to your brain and and giving more oxygenation to the brain, giving more sort of growth factors, which are substances that that help with your neurons, right? The nerves of the brain to, to survive and thrive. And it actually makes for us, you know, increases the amount of blood vessels that are able to help your brain sort of function. But Tai Chi and low intensity yoga, they don't work your heart as hard. So maybe what's happening is that they work through another, another mechanism. Maybe there is um, a different reason why these kinds of less intense strategies make for a more sharp brain and so it's important for us to understand those differences because if they take different highways right to get to that brain it could be that then it would be a best scenario for you to do walking or running on a day and then on another day do low low intensity yoga for example maybe be able to to take take two highways to go to to that same brain um, instead of only one Mm-hmm. and so we have a lot of work to do and we're going to we're going to be mixed for a pretty pretty fulfilling busy life as a as a PT neuroscientist but it's it's one of the things that brings joy to my heart so i I'm very, very excited for the future.
3: So, so, as you say, I mean, there are all these variables and question marks, but uh, but the bottom line seems to be that that the evidence is in that exercise can be cognitively as well as physically helpful. So, if you're leading a relatively sedentary lifestyle, the time is now to get started.
1: Absolutely.
3: Well, uh, Joyce Gomez Osman, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Move Forward Radio. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for this opportunity. You've been listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find previous episodes at moveforwardpt.com. Move Forward Radio is brought to you by moveforwardpt.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at moveforwardpt.com.